Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are bringing you a classic episode of Invention. This was the one we recorded about the museum. It originally published July 1st, 2019. Yeah, this, this is a fun one because it it's not something you might even think about as being an invention, as being a, something that uh, for which there had to be a first. Uh, so let's just dive right in and discover uh, the history of the museum. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. You know, humans are aware of history. Uh, that's, that's one of our, our key attributes. Not always, though. Well, to varying degrees, <laughs> we're aware of history, or we have awareness of of, of what we think history to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and not just our own personal history, but uh, history across generations, across decades, across centuries, uh, millennia even. Uh, we're aware of what came before via oral traditions and the evidence of the world around us, even as we continually change in anticipation of the future. And then, of course, we have recorded history as well. And we have a concept of history that goes beyond concern for literal accuracy about what happened in the past. I think about everything from ancient mythologies in which people tried to construct a, you know, not not literally existent uh, version of their past, but something to sort of explain the present. Right. Uh, all, all the way to the kinds of mythical histories that people still like to engage in today, you know, ancient aliens and all, you know, half the stuff on the the history shows on TV. Oh, yeah. Inevitably, um, history ends up um, melding with myth. And you really don't have to go too far back in history for that to take place, Mm -hmm. uh, for for the historical to become uh, the legendary, at least. But one thing that makes clear, I think, is that we have a kind of craving for something that we think of as history that is not always exactly the same thing as knowing what's actually true about what happened X number of years ago. Right, right. So establishing just from the get-go that uh, the human um, contemplation of history is in and of itself uh, kind of a complex thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, narrative uh, uh, becomes a, an, an essential part of it, but also a complicating aspect of it. Yeah. And, and then there are additional concerns we're going to get into. Uh, now, when we when we think about history, uh, I mean, one of the things about human use of history is that uh, we're able to pass information on in a way that doesn't depend on our genetics. Uh, so a big part of it is of course, just recorded histories, uh, literature about uh, the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, there are the artifacts of the past. Uh, there are the artifacts of the, the distant past, uh, the, 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 the relatively recent uh, past, um, artifacts of the present. And all of these things find their way into museums. Yeah. I mean, think about what your feeling about ancient Egypt be if you could only have read about it and you mm-hmm. never could have seen any of its artifacts, any of its artwork, you never seen images of the pyramids, never seen the uh, the ancient figurines or the, the sarcophagi or anything like that, there would be an, a necessary texture that would be lacking to your understanding of what ancient Egypt was. Yeah. And of course, t- today we have so many tools at our disposal to, to say, understand ancient uh, Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, we just, we have a better understanding than ever before. Uh, there's still a lot of things we don't know, but we, but, you know, we're at the, uh, the bleeding edge of our understanding. Right. Um, and uh, and on top of that, we have uh, photography, we have uh, the motion picture, uh, we have uh, computer imagery, we have uh, um, just a whole host of, of inventions that have made it, uh, first of all, made it easier for us to understand what ancient Egypt was like, and it's made it uh, easier for people all around the world to get a grasp of it. You know, like you, you no longer have to travel to ancient Egypt. Uh, as certainly even the, the the Romans did, the ancient Romans, uh, <laughs> cons- uh, in their contemplation of the even more ancient Egyptians. Uh, and then likewise, you don't even have to be able to travel to a, a museum that has artifacts that have been transported from Egypt. Obviously, you can go to websites, you can go to uh, to books, to films, etc. Mm-hmm. But the museum is still important. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's important in multiple ways. I mean, I, I think about the two main ways it's important. Number one, of course, is just the preservation and display of artifacts to, right. to show you what they looked like, you know, to, to give you the, the physical representation. But then I think equally as important is the uh, the contextualizing literature of a museum, the right. interpretive material, because, you know, this is often pointed out by archaeologists and historians that 
if we only form our picture of uh, a past civilization by looking at its physical artifacts, there is a necessary sort of uh, filtering mechanism there that's time. You don't see all the aspects of the civilization that are prone to uh, – that are biodegradable or that are prone to erosion, breaking down over time. Uh, so, I mean, he, there, there's sort of this joke about like – you know, if you only look at the artifacts and you don't read about the other things or see sort of artists' uh, representations of what the other things surrounding these artifacts might have been, you, you could assume that everyone in ancient Egypt, like, walked around in stone clothes. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, that all the, the art, uh, all the sculpture in ancient Rome was unpainted and, you know, stoic and gray. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's essentially, in this sense, the uh, the archaeological and the anthropological are very much like uh, paleontology. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to look at the, even the reassembled and, uh, uh, you know, the, the reassembled fossils of a prehistoric creature, mm-hmm. uh, but then there are all the things that did not survive, uh, that we have to uh, piece together uh, uh, to, to get a full understanding of what this creature was or might have been. Yeah, the, the skin across time, uh, th- that can all be represented in the interpretive materials of a museum. So those are, I think, equally as important as just like having an artifact and in, in preserving it from being destroyed by the elements. Oh, yeah. Like I think of the like the really great museums I've been to and, I'm, and I've been fortunate enough to get to go to, you know, a number of them. We're fortunate enough to live in a city that has some very nice museums as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's a, you know, there's a journey you go on. There's there's a story that you uh, involve yourself in when you're when you when you're in a really good museum or a really good exhibit. Uh, and I think you know part of that too is like it appeals to spatial learning. Um, for instance, free plug for uh, the Fernbank uh, Museum uh, here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they have a section called the like the Georgia Walk Through Time. And uh, it, it's something that, you know, kids that grew up in the Atlanta area have been going to for a long time and they, they probably end up taking it for granted. But, you know, there's this – it's like a spatial journey. You do walk through time. You get to, uh, you know, go through these exhibits and get kind of a, you know, a walkthrough of uh, geologic history. And, uh, and and I think that's important. Likewise with uh, with fossils and, uh, and reproductions or even uh, – uh, taxidermied um, animals. There is something about being in the physical presence of either this creature or a representation of this creature that that just gives you a, an understanding of it that you don't necessarily get from a book or a description or a film or even some sort of a, a you know a virtual reality simulation. Yeah, that's right. And so later in the episode, we are going to discuss some of the the, the potential drawbacks and uh, other considerations to have about museum culture, but. There is certainly a thing that is great about museum culture, like the the tendency to want to preserve history and explain it. Right, and to, and also can can forge an emotional connection. Like I believe it was um, the Field Museum. I believe we 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 were there uh, together because uh, mm-hmm. we had a um, a, a work uh, thing up there, and uh, they they had a an exhibit about where they had an artistic recreation of a slave ship mm-hmm. and you like walk through the hold of it and mm-hmm. it's uh, you know it's just a really emotional experience it just brings uh, you know I remember you know it brought tears to my eyes you know and it was like that's an example where you know you you have this positive uh, emotional um, manipulation to a certain extent by the by the museum you know to give you this emotional connection with a topic and I think that's easy to overlook when we think of museums because you can think of them as, as just a like a stoic presentation of mm-hmm. artifacts that are perhaps lacking in context uh, or require a great deal of reading of fine print. Uh, but but then, they, they could also help you feel the pain and passion of people who have been long dead. Right. Um, the Civil Rights Museum here in Atlanta also does a tremendous job through, uh, you know, all sorts of like multimedia of, of, of uh, you know, be, being able to like there's one exhibit where you, you sit at a lunch counter and you wear um, headphones to mm-hmm. give you the experience of, uh, of being being a protester uh, during uh, uh, the civil rights movement in mm-hmm. America. And, uh, you know, it's, it's little things like that, often with, with you know, some technological bells and whistles, which if, if used uh, wisely, you know, can just really in- enhance what the museum is able to do uh, from, you know, an educational perspective. That's exactly right. And that, that's a good point about how, you know, museums today are much more than just uh, the storage and display of physical artifacts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the sort of classic museum tradition is like, you have an object of some kind of significance. It's a work of art or an artifact found through archaeology or something or, a, you know, it's natural history. Maybe it's mm-hmm. a, a mineral or a bone or something like that. 
um, and and that's on display. But yeah, museums are bigger than that now. They're they're in many ways a sort of just like place you can go to engage with some form or other of history. Right. And in, in, or, or even celebrate it, uh, you know, such as, uh, you know, when I think of some of our, our better, uh, you know, science and technology museums, it's like a, a space where, uh, where, where science is celebrated. Yeah. And there will be various um, activities going on to aid in that celebration from, say, a science-themed playroom for very small children to, say, a lecture series for, uh, uh, for, for older individuals who, uh, you know, who need something more um, you know, substantive. So I guess the question is, how did humans start doing this? Like, mm-hmm. when did the museum tradition begin? W- when did we first get the idea that you would uh, that you would put objects on display or have some kind of uh, place where you could go, you could go to interact with educational materials like this? Right, and I think an important thing that we're we're kind of uh, skipping over in all of this is that. Um, is that a museum, ideally, and, um, and, and generally the better examples that we tend to uh, focus on, are going to be open for everyone. So it's, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, this university has a, a storeroom of artifacts or this, uh, this institution or this family has some uh, wonderful pieces set aside. Uh, you, you'd love it if you could see it. No, uh, a museum is ideally a place that is open to the people. And, uh, and, and, and everyone is allowed to, to venture in and engage with the materials there. Mm-hmm. Right. So just the king's uh, treasure room of like artifacts collected from the, you know, from the cities he has conquered is mm-hmm. not necessarily a museum because that's just his treasure room. Right. And you're probably not invited. And it's probably better if you're not invited. Right. Because <laughs> uh, it sounds like, like a, a dangerous place to venture into. Uh, you know, when I started thinking just sort of, you know, casually at first, uh, you know, about the history of museums, I started thinking, okay, well, what are, you know, what are some of the museums that I've been to and how old are they? And if, if everyone else does this exercise as well, I think you'll note that, you know, most of the museums that come to mind are products of fairly recent history. Um, and obviously this holds true for the various American museums I've visited and even the British Natural History Museum is a product of colonial expansion and wasn't founded until the 19th century, um, spun off from a, you know, a private collection. And, and, uh, and we still see that, that kind of movement going on to this day. You know, we will have large private collections that are either um, that are donated to a museum or spun off into a, a museum of some sort. But uh, the oldest museum in the UK, for instance, uh, the Royal Armories in the Tower of London, only goes back to 1592 with uh, public access emerging in 1660. Now, generally at this point in the podcast, you know, we talk about well, what came before the invention? What was the world leading up to that? Yeah. And I think probably the best exercise here is to is to not to try and think of like a world without museums, but think of the various things in history that are sort of like a museum, but not quite. Okay, so first of all, we already mentioned like the king's treasure room. Right. Uh, you know, you have conquered many cities and many great lands and maybe you you took artifacts that were sacred to them and then you brought it back to your treasure room and you kept it locked up for yourself. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 certainly kind of like a museum but not a museum. And we should note, I mean, that many museums, I mean, one of the the sort of like counterpoints to the good things about a museum is that lots of great museums around the world today do represent a kind of colonial plunder. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there there are cases where is there are objects, you know, in British museums that are of great historical significance, but that, you know, were, were taken from other peoples around the world by colonial invaders from Great Britain. Exactly. So, yeah, the, the king's hoard of treasures is... Uh, it's it's not a museum, but at the same time, it does have a lot in common. And I think that's going to be the case with all of these not-quite-museum examples we're going to touch on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, it's been long fashionable in, in human culture to steal treasures and art from a defeated adversary. Mm-hmm. Um, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we had a couple of episodes about the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, the stories of the Ark of the Covenant involve its uh, – it's captured by the Philistines and later it's captured and, uh, and possible destruction by the Babylonians. And the Philistines were said to have displayed the captured Ark in their own Temple of Dagon. Uh, though, of course, uh, you know, this, we don't know to what extent this, uh, you know, there's reality behind this or if it's just a myth, etc. Mm-hmm. But still, it, it, it drives home that like this is, this is the sort of thing people did. Yeah. Uh, they, if they were to crush or defeat an enemy, sack their cities, well, they would take uh, their, uh, their treasured items back with them. Right. 
Now, another case from uh, from history that that kind of lines up with uh, with a lot of this are the the Roman triumphs, in which the treasures, art, wealth, and armies of defeated enemies were marched uh, through the city as a spectacle, uh, and you know, along with captives, uh, some to be executed or displayed further. So, sort of a you know, an even more intense example of sort of the the more brutal aspects of museum like enterprises. I seem to recall there's a scene of this in Titus Andronicus, I think. Uh, where there's like a yeah, there's like a parade of the enemies. That, yeah, you know, like um, they defeated some Germanic tribe or something. Right, and, and the, yeah, there there are famous accounts of that. You know, and it's kind of like this awful Roman circus of uh, uh-huh. of that's uh, you know, rather uncomfortable to contemplate. Um, and so we we don't want that to be our museums. But then again, like the the shadow of that uh, is cast over even uh, our modern uh, museums. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the even in just in the last century, we've, we've seen museums raided, looted, or destroyed due to military action. So, you know, it sadly continues to be the case that when when groups of people go to war with each other, uh, uh, treasures, uh, artifacts, items of uh, historical or cultural importance uh, are often uh, targeted. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, like rooms full of artifacts are not only created when, say, you know, a, a conquering power or a colonial power or something goes and takes from one culture and brings back home. People also create rooms full of artifacts from their own culture. I mean, a, a common way you find this is in tombs in the ancient world. Exactly, yeah. I mean, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind especially, we've, uh, we've discussed uh, the tombs of ancient Egypt, the tombs mm-hmm. of ancient China. Uh, and these are, uh, you know, these are examples where generally it, it has to do with uh, some contemplation of the afterlife or, the, or at least the idea that if, if there is not a world for the ruler to pass into and presumably take their things, then there is still some continuation of identity in the body that is preserved and therefore the, the items, the wealth, all the material possessions or some form of them need to be preserved there as well. Yeah. So it's kind of like a museum, but for the most part, you are not invited to, <laughs> to enter into. Uh, it's, generally, it's, it's looked down upon. Yeah, it's not designed to serve an educational purpose and right. it doesn't have interpretive materials these are these are just i'm taking all my loot to the next world right and i might put a crossbow trap in there <laughs> just in <laughs> case you try and enter now another uh, we we touched a little bit on, on this already uh, bringing up dagon but uh, a, a temple is another example of something that's kind of like a museum a place where valuable and important artifacts may well be displayed for lots of people, if not everybody, then at least for a key demographic to view and admire. And in many cases, the works are in- instructional in nature, uh, you know, a means of seeing the form of a god or goddesses or visually uh, contemplating complex theological concepts like one sees so particularly in uh, uh, Tibetan art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think about uh, the the relics and uh the ways that many uh, Catholic basilicas will say preserve the remains of a sainted person. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so we kind of have like a dash of the tomb there as well. Right. Um, uh, but there's something kind of museum-y about that. Here's an object from the past. It's on display for people to come look at. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, there's also the shrine, which, uh, you know, can be something like a tomb and something like a temple. But, of course, there are secular versions of this as well uh, throughout the world. I mean, you go to uh, Washington, D.C., and you have all the—you go to these monuments, these uh, essentially shrines. And these, you know, often are about celebrating something that is um, tied to cultural or national heritage. Mm -hmm. Large-scale statues as well, public statues, are generally a, a good example of this as well. Right. Now, speaking of shrine, uh, this actually brings us to uh, the the word museum itself. Uh-huh. So, uh, museum derives from the Latin, uh, what is it, mosion, uh, uh, which uh, means precisely this, a shrine to the muses. Huh. Um, the muses, of course, were the Greek goddesses of creativity and inspiration. Oh, yeah. So, th- so we've got a shrine to the muses as the museon. And then that becomes the idea of the museum. I guess that that word is coined probably much later to refer to what we think of as museums. Right. For instance, if we go back to the 3rd century BCE, we have the Museum of Alexandria to consider, which included the famed Library of Alexandria. Uh, and it was founded by Ptolemy uh, I Soter and uh, noted for being uh, – who was noted for being the traveling companion and chronicler of uh, Alexander the Great. However, the museum in this case was was not a display of collected 
appreciate art, but a center of learning that ultimately has more in common with a university, uh, you know, that we might think of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this uh, was uh, seemingly destroyed in the, the late third century CE. Um, but yeah, more more like a, a university, a place of learning, a place where uh, learned individuals uh, would gather and celebrate knowledge. So you got a lot of stuff kind of like this in the ancient world, but nothing that is quite like we think of as a, a modern museum. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can you can make a, a, a case that specific museums or museums in general reflect these general attitudes to this day. But yeah, none of these, you can't look at any of these and go like, oh, well, that was a museum. Well, it's like, no, no, it was a treasure hoard or it was really more of a temple. So indeed, museums are uh, would seem to be more of a modern venture, right? Largely rooted in the private wonder rooms or cabinets of curiosities uh, that individuals and, and families had, and then the more modern museums tend to emerge out of these traditions. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, if you look around for some of the example, the oldest examples of things that are museums, uh, you know, a few that often pop, two that often pop up are um, the the Capitol Line Museums, the oldest public uh, collection, the oldest public collection of art in the world. Uh, this is in Rome, dates back to 1471, and uh, Pope uh, Sixtus IV's donation of art to the people of Rome. Mm-hmm. You have the Vatican Museums uh, have their origin as a public in public display uh, in 1506 under Pope uh, Julius II, but. Uh, and, and we might be tempted to stop there, right, and say, oh, well, okay, well, there you go. This, these are some of the earliest examples. Uh, but uh, there is a much older example we're going to get to in this episode that uh, certainly predates uh, anything that happened uh, with the Catholic Church. Yeah, and this one also, I guess, is a matter of interpretation because mm-hmm. what you define as a museum is going to be a matter of interpretation. But this is going to be uh, the earliest known museum, according to uh, the, the great British archaeologist Charles Leonard Woolley. So we don't know for sure when the first museum was created, but I think there's a really reasonable chance that the earliest museum we know about was actually the first one in history. Uh, so let's take a journey to ancient Mesopotamia. Oh, yes, let's do. All right, so we're going to go to the city of Ur. Ur was once one of the great power centers of ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, And if you see photos of the sand-covered ruins of the city and its partially restored great ziggurat today, it might be hard to imagine that this was once like a really thriving, lush, fertile settlement in the ancient world. Uh, Today, it's situated in the desert of southern Iraq, about 16 kilometers or about 10 miles from the Euphrates River, and uh, and this is a rough measurement that I calculated through Google Maps. It's about 250 kilometers or about 150 miles uh, uh, from the coast of the Persian Gulf. And I've read in some sources that in ancient times, uh, Ur was considered more like a coastal city, that I guess the Persian Gulf stretched farther up uh, in, into where you would now have southern Mesopotamia. Hmm. Uh, but in ancient times, the Euphrates River, it, it took a different course and it ran much closer to the city making it this this lush, fertile place that was uh, was a great place for a city. And it's a place to consider the scale of history because archaeologists believe that it was founded sometime in like the fourth millennium BCE. So that that's going to be many thousands of years old to us. In the early dynastic period of the ancient Sumerian kings, Ur became the capital of southern Mesopotamia, and this would have been around the 25th century BCE. So to do a history exercise that we've some, sometimes done on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, just mm-hmm. reminding you like how much time elapsed through the part of the world history that we think of as ancient. Imagine you're Julius Caesar and you're living in the first century BCE. To you as Julius Caesar, the old kingdom of Egypt, which was like you know 2500 to, to 2100 BCE, and the ancient dynasties of Mesopotamia, which would have been you know, roughly the same time, those time periods were more ancient to you as Julius Caesar in the Roman Republic than the Roman Empire is to us. Wow. Ancient Rome is significantly more recent to us than those ancient civilizations were to the ancient Romans. More time passed between Sargon of Akkad and Julius Caesar than between Julius Caesar and us. That's the scale of the history of civilization. And when you think about all that time— all the relics and remains of all those thousands of years coming and going, it, it's hard not to realize that the people who are ancient from our point of view also had to contend with history 
and the idea of its memory, its preservation, and its destruction. And so sometimes history and even nostalgia can kind of feel like recently invented concepts. They're absolutely not. And a great example is a Neo-Babylonian king who lived in the city of Ur. So this was a man named Nabonidus, who was the last real king of Babylon before the city of Ur declined in power in the late 6th century BCE and was subsequently abandoned over the following decades. Uh, So Nabonidus seemed to have a great sense of historical consciousness. He wanted to revive elements of past civilizations from Mesopotamia. One of the things we were reading for this episode was an article by a professor of languages and literature of ancient Israel from Macquarie University named Louise Pryke. And one thing that she pointed out is that uh, this ancient king Nabonidus is often referred to as sort of like an ancient archaeologist king. He was sort of like, you know, one of the first archaeologists. So sort of an ancient Indiana Jones type here. (laughs) Sort of, except he's a king, so he's got all this power to command with the the, it belongs in a museum mentality. Yes. Um, So, uh, yeah, so so this ancient sort of archaeologist king, uh, apparently he conducted excavations to retrieve lost written records from past civilizations of the area. Uh, Later in life, he attempted to restore the ruins of the great Sumerian ziggurat of Ur that had decayed significantly by his time. You may have seen representation or pictures of this ziggurat. uh, And and what we're seeing is a restoration of Nabonidus' restoration of the ziggurat. So it's been through several, it's got a few different coats of paint on it. And that alone, you know, brings up the question of, uh, you know, the authenticity with artifacts, you know, like, right. like which one is the real ziggurat? I mean, they're all the real ziggurat, but, but, uh, but, but then, uh, you know, it, you know, we have to take into account like how much time has passed too. And then when, to what to extent does that get in our way of understanding the past? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird question uh, to, to think about if something was restored in the ancient world after having decayed for hundreds of years. Is that just as original to us, basically? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it makes you question the concept of what an original artifact is. What yeah. is archaeological authenticity? And maybe it, some degree, uh, it to some degree undermines the concept of originality, which might be a good thing. We'll talk about that later again. Um, but yeah, so he, he attempted to restore the ruins of the great Sumerian ziggurat at Ur. He, and he was also, he was a religious revivalist, bringing back cult traditions that had long fallen by the wayside. Specifically, he revived the cult of the moon god Sin, also known, uh, and that's spelled like Sin, like S-I-N, is pronounced Sin, uh, also known to the ancient Sumerians as the god Nana. Now, the city of Ur has a lot of cool stuff about it over, over these, you know, thousands of years. But one of them is that it has some of the most awesome high priestesses in history, uh, I know she's come up on stuff to blow your mind before, but one of my favorite ancient Mesopotamian figures is the earliest known named author of a work of poetry. So not necessarily the first poet ever, but the first poet in history whose name is recorded and known to us. And this is the ancient Sumerian poet, princess, and high priestess in Heduana. Oh, yes. Yeah, in Heduana lived in Ur long before Nabonidus. She lived in Ur when it was an ancient Sumerian city-state in the 23rd century BCE under the rule of her father, Sargon of Akkad. And Inhituana was appointed by Sargon as the high priestess of the goddess Inanna and the moon god Nana. I know that might be kind of confusing. The goddess is Inanna, and the moon god is just Nana, and then, of course, later became Sin. So technically, her title is in, E-N, which is a position of religious and political significance. She refers to herself as the radiant N of Nana. And one of her great works of poetry known to us is known to us today as the Exaltation of Inanna, the goddess, uh, which is this amazing poem to look up. Uh, you should especially look up a trans- translation of the Exaltation of Inanna if you're ever trying to, like, work up a real sense of defiance and righteous anger. It's the <laughs> best stuff. Uh, Robert, would you indulge me to read a few lines? Uh, Certainly. Okay. From the Exaltation of Inanna, this is from the translation in the James Pritchard edition in 1975. You have filled this land with venom like a dragon. Vegetation ceases when you thunder like Ishkur. You bring down the flood from the mountain. Supreme One, 
who are the Inanna of heaven and earth, who rain flaming fire over the land, who have been given the me by An, queen who rides the beasts? <laughs> okay, I got one from later. My queen, all the Inanna, the great gods, fled before you like fluttering bats, could not stand before your awesome face, could not approach your awesome forehead. Who can soothe your angry heart? <laughs> These hymns are amazing, and they are definitely worth looking up. So you've got in Heduana, she's this fireball-hurling poet, uh, the high priestess of the moon god Nana in or in the 23rd century BCE. And then a little less than two millennia later, you've got this neo-Babylonian king, Nabonidus, ruling over Ur, who's looking back into the past. And in looking back into the past, one thing he decides to do is revive the worship of the moon god Nana, who they now called Sin, and like Sargon, Nabonidus appoints his daughter the priestess of the moon god, consulting ancient records to get details about uh, what this moon priestess role would be like, what the, the duties would be, what the rituals would be. Uh, this is a point that, that Pryke makes in her article, is this like looking back into the records for what the priestess's role would be, because he, he's, you know, in a way he's sort of trying to be the next Sargon. Mm-hmm. So who is the, the, the priestess, the daughter of Nabonidus, who gets this role? Well, her name is Inagaldi Nana, also known as Bel Shalti Nana. And unfortunately, we know far too little about who Inagaldi Nana was. But we do know that in addition to her religious role, Inagaldi Nana is recorded as having been the administrator of a school for young priestesses. Uh, but so Inigaldi Nana was more than just an educator. She was more than just a princess, more than just a high priestess of the moon. It's here that we come to the first museum known to history because it appears that Inigaldi Nana was its curator. And this is uh, this is fascinating to behold because we have not only you know the, you know the, the case for the museum, but for a strong case for you know why it was created, what purpose it served, uh, the, the the ruler of the day. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe we should take a break. And then when we come back, we can have a look at this museum. All right, we're back. We're discussing the history of the museum as we know and understand it today. And we're looking at what may well be the earliest example of something that we can reasonably call a museum. Yeah. And and so we should look again at what would be the criteria there, right? How would we know if we'd found the first museum in history? Uh, because as we've discussed before, just having a treasure room of artifacts isn't really a museum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a museum as understood today has two main parts, right? It's got preservation and interpretation. You've got objects or artifacts that are preserved and kept on d- display. This is the preservation aspect. And those objects are explained and contextualized by educational interpretation materials. You know, like the little written placards you find next to objects at a museum exhibit today. And I think it's also important that it must be clear that this institution has some sort of public educational purpose, right? It can't just be like a private thing that's just for you. Right. It's about uh, it's about sharing this information with the world. And we see that in our you know, our, our, our best examples of museums, uh, mm-hmm. you know, say like a really good science and technology museum is about, you know, sharing the, the uh, passing on the torch of, uh, of, of, of scientific inquiry and, uh, and, and celebrating what it can do uh, uh, for human civilization. And then on the other hand, you have, say, uh, a creationist museum, which takes a right. very different approach, uh-huh. uh, uh, but is ultimately trying to do the same thing, right? It is, it is, it is using artifacts or supposed artifacts. I mean, sometimes it's using actual um, uh, remnants of the past, mm-hmm. but then using it to push a, a different narrative. I guess that's true. Like, even if we judge the educational purpose of a museum to be misguided and leading to incorrect conclusions, I mean, I guess still, the, if the goal of it is uh, is educational according to the people who made it, even if that education is you know, maybe uh, look, make, making your king look good or something. Right. You could consider that a form of a museum. Right. I mean, and certainly and it, even our better museums have had to evolve with the times and have right. had, to, had to change the way that they present, uh, you know, particularly, uh, you know, things from a cultural, uh, but even a historical standpoint to, to uh, you know, to, to either, uh, you know, keep up with uh, with changing norms, to correct past uh, um, errors, and then, uh, 
um, you know, and also to uh, to take into account new information about uh, uh, the, the the cultures and the time periods that are presented. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, one great thing about modern museums is you know they can often be a way uh, uh, to see into other cultures that you might not encounter firsthand. But you know, a lot of these exhibits, if the museum has been around a long time. They may have initially been established with a kind of condescending colonialist attitude or right. know, that, that sort of shows other cultures, but in a way that might not be accurate, maybe that looks down on them, that doesn't regard them as, you know, equally valid uh, cultures. Right. Uh, I mean, it, uh, yeah, it's important to, to note that like the, the, the basic idea of the museum uh, it, you know, it can be skewed for different purposes. I mean, there's a difference between the Muter Museum in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and, say, a, um, uh, you know, a, a circus sideshow, uh-huh. uh, you know, just a, like a display of uh, preserved uh, human remains with either no context or faulty context regarding what uh, those jars contain. There's a difference between an actual museum about, say, human evolution and uh, – the Bigfoot Museum that we have in uh, the North Georgia Mountains, which, right. which is a wonderful museum, but it, it, has a, <laughs> it has a definite agenda, a definite n- narrative that it's pushing. And hopefully a lot of people that go there are, you know, engaging with it sort of tongue in cheek or people are able to suspend disbelief, you know, and enjoy uh-huh. it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, a slightly different exer- exercise or any, you know, like roadside attraction, uh, you know, from decades past mm-hmm. where, uh, where something may be on display that is, uh, you know, that is maybe, uh, you know, lacking in terms of uh, its, uh, you know, scientific or historical, um, you know, believability. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we can often think of a museum as a medium uh-huh. as opposed to like message. Right. Okay. So to get back to Inigaldi Nana, uh, throughout the 1920s and 30s, There was a British archaeologist named Sir Charles Leonard Woolley who worked on the excavation of the ancient city of Ur. And in 1925, Woolley and his colleagues were excavating a Babylonian palace within the ancient city. And they began to uncover a very strange clustering of artifacts. Within this palace were artifacts from different geographical locations and different periods of ancient history, all neatly arranged together in this one building. And it appears that this collection was created sometime around the year 530 BCE. Now, the earliest artifacts they found went back almost to the time of Sargon and in Heduana. They they went back to about 2100 BCE. Uh, And again, I was trying to find a point of comparison for historical scale. So if these people living in the 6th century BCE had artifacts from 2100 BCE, that's like us today having artifacts from the personal effects of Attila the Hun, who wow. was invading the Western Roman Empire in the middle of the 5th century CE. That's the, the approximate time difference. Uh, so what was among this collection of things that Woolley discovered here in this, in this ancient site? One thing was the partially restored remains of a statue of the great king Shulgi of Ur, who ruled in the 21st century BCE. And you might remember Shulgi came up in our episode about walls, actually, because Shulgi is credited with uh, creating one of the first known defensive boundary walls in history. The wall he built was known as the Wall of the Land or the Amorite Wall or the Keeper at Bay of the Nomads. It's a little on the nose. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was designed to defend Sumer against attacks from nomadic peoples called the Amorites uh, who lived to the north of them. And Shulgi's wall is thought to have been more than 100 miles long, stretching between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Uh, and in this, uh, this other episode, I quoted from an ancient Sumerian poem, which mentioned it by recalling with nostalgia how, quote, the wall of Unug extended out over the desert like a bird net, <laughs> you know, comparing it to this thing that they used to actually catch birds. And so in this poem, the speaker is lamenting how, you know, there were better days back when their civilization had been more powerful and more glorious, and it was the time of Shulgi in this wall. Uh, but in reality, of course, these walls did not accomplish the goal of protecting Sumer, which fell to invasions from the Amorites and the Elamites. It was not an effective strategy. And, uh, and in his own autobiographical writings on the excavation of Ur, Charles Leonard Woolley notes something interesting about the statue of Shulgi. So he describes it, quote, as a a fragment of diorite statue, a bit of the arm of a human figure on which was an inscription, and the fragment had been carefully trimmed so as to make it look neat and preserve the writing. Hmm. 
So there appears to be evidence here of an ancient preservation work to keep the carvings on the statue from being damaged and to keep them legible. Uh, also among the things found here was an ancient Kassite boundary stone, a type of artifact known as a kuderu. Now, kuderu were stone boundary markers used in ancient Mesopotamia. And these things are pretty cool. It's kind of like if you could have a stone pillar with a written copy of the deed to your house, noting how you got the land and which notaries witnessed the sale of the property, and also possibly containing carvings of gods, celestial objects, and monsters, and definitely curses. It's going to be <laughs> full of curses. The Kuduru in Inigaldi Nana's museum is from uh, around 1400 BCE, and Woolley noted that it contained an awesome curse against anybody who displaced or destroyed the stone. So uh, what are these curses like, right? Uh, I was looking at an example of a Kuduru excavated from Tel Abu Haba. So it's not the same Kuduru, but its curse warning uh, tells about what you cannot do or else face the curse. <laughs> so it says, Whensoever in days to come among future men, an agent or a governor or a ruler or anyone or the son of anyone at all who shall rise up and in respect of that field shall make a claim or cause a claim to be made, or shall say, this field was not presented, or shall change that stone from its place, or shall cast it into the water, or into the fire, or shall break it with a stone, or because of these curses shall fear, and shall cause a fool or a deaf man or a blind man to take it up, and set it in a place where it cannot be seen. That man who shall take away the field, may Anu, the father of the gods, curse him as a foe. Oh, wow. This covers so much. I'm about to get into exactly what the curse is in a second, but I love this. It's like, okay, you cannot erase the record of who owns this field. You can't throw it in the water. You can't throw it in the fire. You can't get a blind person who can't read these warnings <laughs> to pick it up for you and do it for you. Now, one one wonders if they were say if this was simply uh, you know they were just thinking of potential loopholes, or if this had been a loophole that was employed. Right. Uh, that there was that there was a blind individual who was often employed to uh, you know muck around with people's uh, property rights. Right. Okay. So here's so what happens if you violate this this boundary marker? You you try to move it or something. Uh, here's a little bit of the curse play. Uh, the, the first line has some illusion, so it's it's Mayadad, the lord of the crops, do something. It's been worn off. But after that, it gets going. May Nergal in his destruction not mm -hmm. spare his offspring. May Shukamuna and Shumalia pronounce evil against him. May all the gods whose names are mentioned on the stone curse him with a curse that cannot be loosened. May they command that he not live a single day. May they not let him nor his name nor his seed endure days of drought, years of famine. May they assign for his lot. Before God, King, Lord, and Prince, may his whining be continuous, <laughs> and may he come to an evil end. That's a pretty stiff curse. Yeah. Okay, may his whining be continuous. So uh, to quote from Charles Leonard Woolley's own account of the other objects they discovered, apart from these two we just explained, uh, quote, then came a clay foundation cone of a Larsa king about 1700 B.C., then a few clay tablets of about the same date, and a large votive stone mace head, which was uninscribed but may well have been more ancient by 500 years. What were we to think? Here were half a dozen diverse objects found lying on an unbroken brick pavement of the 6th century B.C., Yet the newest of them was 700 years older than the pavement, and the earliest perhaps 1600. And so Woolley writes that the evidence made it pretty clear uh, that it was impossible that all these different artifacts would have ended up arranged together like this by accident. Uh, and he, uh, he notes again the trimming of the inscription on the Shulgi statue, which seems like a deliberate act of preservation. Uh, and then finally came the answer of what, of what they were looking for. Uh, Woolley writes, quote, then we found the key. A little way apart lay a small drum-shaped clay object on which were four columns of writing. The first three columns were in the old Sumerian language, and the contents of one at least were familiar to us, for we had found it on bricks of Bur-Sin, king of Ur in uh, 2220 B.C., and the other two were fairly similar. The fourth column was in late Semitic speech. These, it said, are copies of bricks found in the remains of Ur. 
the work of Bur Sin, king of Ur, which while searching for the ground plan of the temple of the governor of Ur found, and I saw and wrote out for the marvel of the beholders. And uh, Woolley notes that the scribe who wrote this inscription overestimated the accuracy of the copies of these bricks. But nevertheless, Woolley recognized the significance of this find. Quote, The room was a museum of local antiquities maintained by the princess Belshalti Nanar, which, remember, is another name for Inigaldi Nana, um, who took after her father, a keen archaeologist. And in the collection was this clay drum, the earliest museum label known, drawn up a hundred years before and kept, presumably together with the original bricks, as a record of the first scientific excavations at Ur. That's incredible, you know, to, to just, uh, you know, imagine these, you know, truly ancient people, uh, you know, someone walking into this room, seeing a, a curious old object, and then potentially reading an inscription to see what it was and yeah. how it factors into their own history. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and the fact, I think it's interesting that they've got They've got copies also, notes about copies of things, Mm -hmm. uh, which would be like the way that many museums today have not necessarily an an original artifact, but a reproduction or say a cast of a fossil that might not be the original thing. Uh, Though, of course, you know, the the funny irony there is that many fossils are not even the original bones. They're they're, stone replacements. They're essentially geologic castings created by, uh, you know, without the aid of uh, human intervention. Yeah. Um, and, And I think that's an interesting Thing, you know, that we, we feel like we need to make this distinction, of course. It's like, well, you could have the real thing here. Or you can have a reproduction of it. And, and somehow there's this sense among many people, I think. And I, I admit that I sometimes feel this. I probably shouldn't. But I feel like the reproduction is like not as good. Wouldn't it be better if the real original thing were there? And I, I want to break myself of this thinking by the end of the episode. Yeah, because I mean, because I found myself caught myself thinking a similar thing about restored works before. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you see, um, you know, pictures of what, say, the Sistine Chapel looked like before and after restoration, one might be tempted to say, "Well, it was, it, it looked better before they restored it," mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a, a silly thing to 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 think or to say. Um, but we get kind of attached to like the you know, sort of the historical wear and tear on a thing. Yeah. Uh, we, we get attracted to, you know, to the ruins. And then uh, we have uh, at least mixed feelings about restoration efforts. I mean, uh, we've, we've talked about uh, before, I believe, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, about the Parthenon. Uh-huh. Um, like the Parthenon is a great example of this because with the original Parthenon, you have various waves of destruction, um, uh, addition, uh, and then considered reconstruction. And there are voices on, you know, different sides. You know, should we, re- should we restore the actual Parthenon to its former glory? Uh, uh, and then if we do re- restore it to a former glory, which former glory? Right. You know? And then likewise, we have the, the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a restoration, a, a, a model, essentially a scale model of the Parthenon that you can walk into and, and look around. I uh, think that's the right model. I don't, I don't think they need to go messing around with the ruins of the Parthenon, but I like the idea of just like building other Parthenons elsewhere. Right. But then also there's just simply the, the effort in, in preserving, right? Yeah. Because also you don't want to just say, you know, if, if you have, say, the ruined remains of some some old building uh, that is important, you also don't want it to continue to erode or should you be open for it, to it continuing to erode? I mean, it's yeah, it's a tough it question. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, we were talking about this before we came in on the episode. But, you know, I think in a way there's almost kind of a, a – a tacit belief in sympathetic magic mm-hmm. that makes us like the idea of the original artifact, whatever right. it was. We we like the idea that, like, you know, the actual artist touched this. Yeah. You know, or the actual person in history wore this. And a reproduction feels less powerful to us because we buy into some strange form of sympathetic magic where it it just doesn't have that magic spark if it wasn't the real thing from the time that somebody actually touched. Yeah, yeah, you want to touch it. Sometimes you want to lick it, and uh, and you're not allowed to. But there's uh-huh. a reason that you have a lot of uh, besuited individuals standing around uh, ready to intervene if you start pointing a little too close to a particular uh, work of art or posing for your selfie just a little bit too close to it. Um, uh, because we we do want to interact with it, you know. We don't want to always we want to stand in its presence, but yeah, we also kind of want to actually physically make contact with it. Yeah. 
So concerning uh, Inigaldi Nana's museum, uh, of course, as we know, you know, we've been talking about this would not be the only place where powerful people in the ancient world had collected relics of days past. You know, many kings of the ancient world would have understood old relics and artifacts to be a sort of genre of treasure to collect mm-hmm. and display your wealth and power. But what makes these artifacts in uh, Inigaldi Nana's museum really seem like exhibits in a museum is is what Woolley notes, that they were accompanied by carvings that bore interpretive data, explanations of what you were looking at, and the fact that it was associated with Inigaldi Nana's school for young priestesses. That sort of cements the idea that this building was a museum that was likely created with an educational purpose. The students could go in and look at this stuff and read about what it was. Yeah, and say, like, this is our history. This is our heritage. Look at these objects and learn. Uh, just another passage uh, I came across. So there's another book where Woolley discussed uh, Inigaldi Nana's museum and commented, quote, that there should be a collection is altogether in accordance with the antiquarian piety of the age and especially of the ruler Nabonidus, who, with whose daughter this building is probably to be associated. Uh, so he's he's saying that in this age in ancient Mesopotamia, in the city of Ur, uh, and this would go along with everything we know about Nabonidus, trying to restore the ziggurats and doing archaeological excavations and all this, that there was this spirit of nostalgia, you know, that they were sort of unusually obsessed with the past for for people of their time and place. And I wonder what what triggers that, you know, what causes a civilization to suddenly take intense interest in preserving and reconstructing the past like Nabonidus and Inigaldi Nana. Well, I wonder if a lot of it does come down to just sort of like, you know, a spatial understanding of things and a need to be, you know, in, in the environment of the past, you know, to fully mm-hmm. comprehend it on an, on an almost animal level. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, part uh, one thing I think that's a tempting historical interpretation is that we know that the dynasty that created the museum wouldn't last. Like, mm-hmm. as I mentioned so this museum was created around the year 530 BCE, and uh, the city of Ur went into decline after the reign of Nabonidus and was abandoned almost completely You know, sometime in the following decades or centuries. Uh, this is probably because of local climate change where the Euphrates River, uh, the bed shifted and moved farther away from mm-hmm. the city, and that combined with drought to basically turn this once fertile power center into this abandoned desert ghost city. And so it's tempting, I think, for us to look at that and say, oh, you know, this was the end of a long civilization in this area. Uh, maybe maybe it's, they sensed they were at the end and this is what made them, you know, so nostalgic for the past and want to create this first museum. Like they, this was their greatest hits album. Right. But I, you know, I don't know if that really makes sense because I don't know if they thought they were living toward the end of their dynasty, you know. That's right. I mean, a, a museum doesn't. It's, we can easily fall into the line of thinking that a museum is a is a place of dead things, mm-hmm. uh, things that you know, things that have uh, uh, that are no longer around, that are uh, important only historically. But we have plenty of museums today that are about uh, you know celebrating things that are alive, celebrating movements that are still happening and 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 are still unfinished. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have works of art that uh, you know, we talked about this and stuff to blow, blow your mind that are that are have been left unfinished either uh, just through the accident, uh, accidents of human life or intentionally to make some statement about, uh, about the nature of human progress. Uh, and so I think it's, it's reasonable to think that some of those elements would very much have been in play uh, in ancient times, you know, uh, to, to realize that like, the, I mean, because we talked about it being used as an educational space. Yeah. So it would have been, you know, not, you know, it would have, had a, have a, it would have had a spirit of, uh, of renewal to it, I mm-hmm. would imagine. An educational place and a place of religious significance. Mm-hmm. So it was part of a school. It was part of uh, Inigaldi Nana's school for priestesses. Right. Um, so, yeah, it makes you wonder about the interplay of the religious impulse also with the desire to preserve and display elements of history. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick ad break. And when we come back, uh, we will discuss the, the legacy of the museum and, uh, and some, of the, some current ideas about where we stand in regards to the museum. All right, we're back. So one thing we sort of mentioned earlier is that, you know, I, I love museums. I'm, I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of, you know, natural history museums and cultural history museums. And th- they can do a really wonderful thing. 
Um, but also, you know, the, there are a lot of drawbacks to museums, especially some, you know, h- how museums used to be. I think a lot of museums are doing a lot of work in recent years to try to, like, uh, disentangle the nature of their educational exhibits from, say, you know, colonial legacies and stuff like that. Right. Uh, and, and to, you know, do do what needs to be done to honor, say, uh, you know, living, thriving cultures that uh, their artifacts represent. Yeah. So there are important questions to ask about what museums represent today and how, uh, you know, what role they play for us culturally and maybe how they could be made better. Yeah. And it, a lot of it comes down to questions of ownership, not only who owns a particular item, you know, does this does this piece of uh, does this painting belong to a certain family, or no? Does it belong to this museum now? Does it belong to the nation in which the museum um, uh, is housed? Like it goes beyond that; it gets into considerations of like who owns the past mm-hmm. and and who owns the story of the past. Uh, so we were looking at a, an excellent Ian Magazine essay on the subject titled "Who Really Owns the Past" by American archaeologist Michael Press. And um, I, I recommend everyone check this out. But some of the, the key points uh, that Michael makes are, are really um, uh, worth uh, thinking about here. He points out that our, you know, our current way of thinking about heritage uh, began to take shape in the 19th century, both in the West and in the Middle East. Uh, the Westerners were pretty quick to disregard local emerging laws concerning artifacts, uh, you know, considering them an attempt by ro- local rulers to lord over the dead and interfere with what they seemed to, you know, to, to see as this sort of natural migration of artifacts to Europe. Yeah. This interpretation of uh, you know, so, so on one side, you know, the locals might be saying, well, we need some laws in place to keep these artifacts from wandering uh, outside of our borders. Mm-hmm. And then the, the colonial impulse was more, oh, no, these belong to the world. We're so, this, this is everybody's heritage. But the world happens to be in London. Yeah, the world's back in London. So we're going to take <laughs> right. these back there. And also uh, antique laws, as we know them today, really emerged out of the post-World War II period. So international agreements such as the 1954 Hague Convention and the 1970-1972 UNESCO Conventions Uh, It all placed a new emphasis on national sovereignty and on national heritage. But still the question remains, who owns the artifacts of the past and who owns the story of the past? Mm -hmm. Because, again, you can think of the museum – as 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 a medium for a story, you know, there's and, and we we often forget this when we really place a lot of trust in say uh, the Met or the Natural History Museum. You know, mm-hmm. I think we generally trust these institutions for good reason. Uh, you know, to present the best interpretation of the the history or the science or the or the 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 artistry that is on display. Mm-hmm. And we see, again, various museums make an effort to change their displays to honor an evolving understanding of the past or to honor living cultures they depict, etc. But Press points out that when nations and nation, when nation states themselves own the artifacts, own the past, uh, they can use these uh, treasures to push a nationalistic agenda. Mm. So Michael Press uh, writes, quote, Governments increasingly looked to remains of the distant past to bolster national identities and a sense of greatness or to marginalize disfavored groups. Saddam Hussein used the ruins of Babylon to spread ideas of Iraq's greatness as well as his own, even portraying himself as a modern Nebuchadnezzar. China's leadership has used archaeology to project national greatness onto the distant semi-legendary past. Today, India's Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist government has worked to use archaeology to prove that modern Hindus can trace their descent from the earliest inhabitants of India. So you put this sort of thing in place and, you know, you, he says you actually invite looting. You actually invite the damage because history is made to serve the engines of nationalism or, um, you know, or what have you. You know, looting becomes a potential act of resistance. And we've actually seen this. He points out an example. You know, one example would be uh, the destruction of monuments in Syria and Iraq by ISIS. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the equation, you know, the whole colonial movement was steeped in arguments that these were items of global heritage and and this is used at times to justify removing artifacts from native lands. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like the idea that there are things that are, you know, the common heritage of humankind for history. But what does that actually mean in practice right. when you say, OK, in practice, it's the common heritage of humankind. So that means we'll take it to somewhere in Europe or the United States. And right. I mean, because, yes, when you when you look at the, the movements of culture, when you look at the even the early migrations of human beings, mm-hmm. you can make a, you know, a case to say, well, the artifacts of India are part of my culture as well. They're part of my heritage as well. 
But it's another thing to say that means that they need to be relocated to uh, to your city, you know, or right. your country, or that you know your nation has uh, can lay a claim to it. But then again, as, as he points out in this article, you know, it gets it, this is still a very complicated uh, scenario. You bring in, uh, you know, the fact that you have, uh, you know, in our day and age, you have people uh, from various nations that have spread all over the world, and mm-hmm. and so it's not always as simple as this cultural group stole this cultural group's belongings, though sometimes it is. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird because it's hard to say who owns the past, but then again, something definitely feels wrong about just, say, a colonial power taking artifacts from one country and then taking them back to the home right, base. absolutely. Another side of this that he points out that I hadn't really thought about is that in some cases you have uh, designated UNESCO World Heritage Sites. That uh, you know, these are places where the the it is a you know place of um, of you know, very important historical significance uh, that needs to be preserved, but then also ends up being the kind of thing people want to visit, and that can actually impact local communities, forcing the removal of people either to you know to to allow uh, the study of this location or to make a way for developments associated with the site's new historical um, significance. Oh, yeah, and uh, and then then you throw uh, you know. Very various other um, uh, political factors into the mix, and it gets even more complicated. He points out that in the case of Syria, multiple parties have used heritage as a weapon of war, uh, obviously ISIS, but also he, uh, he brings up uh, uh, Russia and even the United States using uh, uh, you know, celebrations of, um, of archaeological materials as being sort of part of the overall messaging associated with uh, you know, whatever side of the, the political scenario the player happens to be on. Mm-hmm. And he, he does drive home that it is, it, it's messy. You know, when you have, um, you know, all these uh, different factors playing into the uh, the past and these artifacts of the past. But he points out that cultural heritage experts propose several ideas for a better future of museums. Uh, so just to, to run through them really quickly, uh, the three main points are, uh, number one, give more control to local communities, not national interests. So sort of on the ground with people rather than with national governments. Right. Uh, The second one is to reduce the importance of the original, uh, which we talked about a little earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this this one is a tricky one to to think about, uh, and well, one of the reasons is that he points out that you know, in, in uh, there's this high Western priority placed on the original item, the original work of art, the original carvings, etc. But he says we you know we have long seen a different approach in Eastern cultures, which were more about just you know preserving and recreating the thing itself, the work itself, like it was more about the the message in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it, it it is you know as, as someone who loves museums, you know it is hard to get past. That like it, there is something really awesome about standing in the presence of the actual work or the you know the actual um, remains that have been transported here, uh, but then when you take into account all these other factors we've been discussing, you, you do have to ask yourself: Well, would it really make it you know any less impressive if it was just a really uh, fantastic uh, recreation of a particular work or a particular carving? I mean, certainly when you get into sculptures. It's a it's a lot easier. Like I, I can easily see that being the case. Yeah. Like, do I really need the actual? Let's say it's uh, you know uh, the statue of David. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do I need that transported over here to look at, or what if it was just a perfect copy? I think I would be happy with that. And if I'm happy with that, uh, wouldn't that apply to various other uh, museum artifacts as well? Especially if the context is really good, if the narrative yeah. is really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is something that, you know, people who are the audiences for museums should try to adapt themselves to, to be more satisfied with high-quality recreations and, uh, you know, uh, casts and, you know, it, all kinds of things that don't necessarily involve having the physical original there. Yeah, Especially now when you can have all this additional information. You can have pictures of the original, videos of the original, additional uh, technological interactions with, uh, with media about the original piece. But then you also have this physical uh, uh, recreation that you can uh, enjoy as well. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the third point that he makes, though, is that that we should rethink the idea of heritage as property at all. That we should have something along the lines of open access heritage. Hmm. Again, a very interesting but also potentially challenging way to think about it. Like it forces us to turn some of our experiences with museums on their head. Uh, but but I could I could see 
that working though, mm-hmm. uh, because certainly some of the, the the trickier parts of all of this is just the, the treating heritage as something that is uh, that is property, and that there are property rights tied up with it. And that say a museum just cannot return a particular artifact to the the uh, the culture it came from because of some sort of a property issue. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that, but yes, I guess sometimes things are probably on loan to museums from people who supposedly own them. Right. But like, why does that person own them? It might be because, you know, somebody way down the line stole it and then left it to them or gave it to, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Or they just acquired it, if not through like, like outright and obvious, um, military or colonial treachery than perhaps through, you know, economic pressures that would not have been there um, had, had it not been the, for the colonial influence to begin with. Yeah, this is a difficult issue. It, definitely worth giving thought to, especially if you're a person who frequents museums. Yeah, and really we only, we only scratch the surface here mm-hmm. um, on, on this issue because there are also additional <laughs> layers uh, to consider with uh, with the you know archaeological uh, artifacts, uh, you know such as uh, what uh, Lynn Meskel calls negative heritage. What do you do mm-hmm. about a, an, a historical artifact that's tied up with uh, you know a lot of negative aspects of society? You know maybe it's tied to say uh, you know racist ideologies or something. Um, what do you do with those artifacts? How do you, you treat them? I think uh, one possible answer there is that you you have you make sure that the context of the museum that is uh, presenting them you know is taking all that into account mm-hmm. uh, but uh, anyway as uh, as as uh, as michael drives home like this is this is still another like complicated uh, area when we, uh, we we try to figure out exactly where the museum is headed in the future yeah all right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. But uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody. We know you all have favorite museums you would like to uh, uh, mention uh, on the, to, to us. Uh, perhaps we've been to them as well. Or maybe you'll point out uh, some new smaller museum that we've never even heard of. And we'll be able to put that on our radar uh, for our future travels. Uh, as always, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Make sure you have subscribed to Invention as well. And just tell your friends about it. If uh, next time somebody's asking around, hey, what are some good podcasts to listen to? Throw our name into the mix. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's that, it's that word of mouth that really uh, makes all the difference. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tori Harrison, and to our guest producer today, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future to let us know about your favorite museum, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 